Welcome to WPKN's Resistance Roundtable, coming to you the second Saturday of each month from 10 to 11 a.m. Well, this was the week that was, cheered on by our dying duck president. The U.S. Capitol was attacked by a fascist white supremacist mob who stormed the Capitol, broke windows, vandalized offices, threatened congressional staff and police, brandished weapons, waved Trump and Confederate flags, and marauded unrestrained and unrestricted through the Capitol buildings. This was occurring while the Georgia Senate runoff election results confirmed that Democrats Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff won their elections, effectively turning over the control of the U.S. Senate to Democratic control. Bye-bye, Mitch. So we're going to talk about all this with our regular panel, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who teaches English at Central Connecticut State University and is active in the American Association of University Professors. She also directs plays at the Westport Community Theater, which is now in hiatus, and uh, someday we'll all be uh, trooping over there to see... uh, more really excellent productions. Keep your fingers crossed. Scott Harris is also uh, on the panel today, of course. He is the host of CounterPoint, a public affairs show that airs every Monday at 8 p.m. here on WPKN. He's also the executive producer for, for Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, a nationally syndicated show that also airs here on WPKN. My name is Richard Hill, and I host... First Tuesday, Rainy Day Radio, the organic farm stand, and I'm on the roster of hosts for the public issue show, Mike Check, which airs every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. I actually will be on tomorrow with Dan Barrett from the Connecticut ACLU talking about the problem, uh, the crisis in Connecticut prisons with the spread of COVID and the very, very... Uh, inadequate provisions made to protect staff and prisoners in the system. And this week, we'll be joined by a guest, Professor Michael McKeon, who will discuss his recent article in In These Times, The Disloyal Opposition Storms the Capitol. The Republican Party has abandoned the role of loyal opposition to wage war against democracy. So later in the show, we're going to make a... uh, Supreme effort to have listeners call in. We hope you'll have plenty to say and want to line up and and get in on the action. We'll give out that number a little later. We want to invite you to call in and uh, express your thoughts on what has transpired during this this week and before and beyond. And the Trump presidency is coming to end, but in a kind of a car wreck, 100-car pileup on uh, I-95, so to speak. So, Scott... And Ruthann, we have plenty to talk about, but with very little time to do it. So I'm not sure if you have a word or two you want to say about the, might be described as the uh, staggering events of this week. Ruthann, I hope you're with us there on the phone. Do you have any sentence or two you want to say? Uh, Well, I have about eight sentences. I'll try. Uh, I, I just spent a semester trying, I think not very successfully, to teach college students how to write online, uh, but I thought I had become very computer savvy. Just the same, yesterday I was watching President-elect Biden streaming online as he announced the final nominees for his cabinet, the seats having to do with the economy. I thought I would get, you know, 
uh, do well with that. Along the right-hand side of the page before the si- below the sign interpreter, viewer comments were being streamed, as were the floating thumbs up and hearts and other emoticons representing, I imagine, the feels of the crowd. The nominations looked good to me, and I was proud of Mr. Biden's calm tone, friendly demeanor, and thoughtful explanations of his choices. But I was also compulsively trying to read the comments. Ever since childhood, I've found the printed word impossible to ignore. And so I found myself trying to listen intelligently to the speaker, watch the skill and vividness of the signer, and read the comments as they flew up the page. I came away amazed at the viciousness of some of the comments, both personal attacks on Mr. Biden and right-wing threats and propaganda, and also gratified at the expressions of confidence and hope. I also came away marveling at the speed with which so many people seem able to simultaneously listen, think, and type. And then I began to wonder what the point was of the streaming. Some of the posts were extended exchanges of accusations and insults at Mr. Biden and or at other posters. Some were brief rants that took their cue from a phrase or gesture in the speech. There was no way I could keep up with the dialogue, let alone add my own thoughts or, after a while, even think my own thoughts. I can't believe that that was the purpose. But at what point does uncensored self-expression defeat thought rather than encouraging it? And that was uh, the, the thing that kept resonating with me even overnight as I looked back on that experience of trying to think and read at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we'll move right along over to Scott and see what his thoughts are for the, uh, this day about this week. I made a bunch of notes, and it, I think like everybody else, just sort of overwhelmed by emotion and, in my case, anger about what's taken place. Together, our nation has witnessed Donald Trump's more than two-month effort to overturn the outcome of a Democratic presidential election, aided and abetted by the majority of Republican Party members of the House and Senate. The events of Wednesday, January 6, witnessed a fascist-inspired attack on the U.S. Capitol, whose goal was to employ violence to prevent the certification of the 2020 presidential election winners, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. The assault on the Capitol by these domestic terrorists resulted in the deaths of five people, including a Capitol police officer. There are credible reports that some of the insurrectionists who attacked the seat of American democracy plan to take House members and senators hostage, with many calling for the murder of those they captured, including the hanging of Vice President Mike Pence. In short, America has a fascism problem. It's had it for a long time. The mask has been torn off the Republican Party. They are an enemy of democracy at this point in our history. And I'm not sure how we as a nation are going to handle this crisis. But it is indeed a crisis, and it's a crisis of fascism by one of our two major parties in this country. It's a frightening prospect of what we are up against. And that's where I'll leave it. Well said. This isn't the first time that fascism has reared its head in the United States in the, in the 1930s and 40s. Father Coughlin was a uh, radio personality who had inspired, I don't know how many, tens of thousands, but approaching 100,000 people to turn up at Madison Square Garden for really a completely open and shut fascist rally. There is a fascist movement, a strain that goes back decades, probably to the end of the 19th century. And so it's it's there. This is the first time in my lifetime when I have seen this kind of thing manifest into actual violence, an actual assault 
on the seat of government. It, what looked like a, an authentic attempt to actually not just demonstrate and you know have havoc and mischief making happening there, but to actually destroy, to damage, to harm people, to possibly kidnap and kill people. And our last show, I jokingly referred to Trump and his orc army. Well, when I saw the images, the vision of those people streaming up the Capitol steps and then smashing through that pathetic little police line and the barriers into the building, I, for all the world, thought I was watching Lord of the Rings and the orcs storming into uh, some sort of elfin hall where they were going to kick the living crap out of every creature they could find. It was a very, very stark and frightening image. The orcs have arrived. Well, right now we're uh, joined by our guest this morning. Uh, Michael McKeon is a Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of Literature at the Department of English at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. And we're going to be talking about Professor McKeon's recent article, The Disloyal Opposition Storms the Capitol. The Republican Party has abandoned the role of loyal opposition to wage war against democracy. Professor McKeon, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, you're on the line with uh, myself, Scott Harris, Richard Hill, and Ruth Ann Baumgartner, okay. uh, co-hosts of this program. To, uh, to start things off on this uh, really moment of crisis in our country's history, uh, Professor McKeon, just to start our conversation on the points made in your article, The Disloyal Opposition Storms the Capitol, I would like you to... Uh, just comment on the reality that I think many of us have arrived at, that uh, one of our two major political parties in the United States has declared war on democracy at this point. We have a majority of House members and a substantial number of U.S. senators who are basically dismissing the idea that uh, democracy and elections are legitimate anymore, that they are the only ones who are deemed, deemed qualified to, to retain power in this country. It's a frightening prospect. No, I, I think that's that's right, and that's very much what my article is about. I was moved to write the article over a month ago, uh, partly out of the sense that although uh, what you say is evidently true, and certainly was then, there there wasn't an ability or a language among commentators to really acknowledge what it means even to say that the Republican Party is anti-democratic. That became kind of a, um, such a common acknowledgement in, in talking about their rejection of uh, the various election results that it came to seem almost formulaic uh, and a, a way of sort of, um, of stating the obvious but without coming to terms with the implications of the obvious. So the reason I wrote the article is because I thought that uh, a certain amount of historical knowledge might help to place what the party is actually doing in perspective by, uh, in effect, by, by explaining how it came to be that the whole notion of uh, a political party as a loyal opposition came to be, and came to be out of uh, the results of 
civil war, that is to say, military opposition, which uh, over the course of the 17th century in England uh, ensured that nobody wanted to reignite the flames of civil war, and therefore the conclusion that some sort of political rather than military way of expressing opposition had to be worked out. So, Professor McKean, just to follow up on that on that point, now that we are living in a reality where one of our two major political parties has rejected democracy, how do we respond? There are some commentators who say we should reach across the aisle and sing Kumbaya and uh, hold hands and hope for the best and reunite the country. There are people right now who say that Donald Trump should not be impeached a second time because that will only inflame his supporters. What is your position on how the majority of the country should respond to this crisis of one of our major parties being an enemy of democracy? Well, my my belief, as I said in the piece and as I've been feeling for a year now, uh, my belief is that the one thing that the Biden administration should not do is try to reach across the aisle, given the fact that uh, President Obama's attempt to do that, uh, as far as I can see, only inflamed the opposition and only encourage the Republican Party to double down on what has shown itself to be its its treasonous opposition to whoever's in power that they don't back. Uh, the point that I make in my piece is, um, among other things, that we talk a great deal about Trump's base, his popular base, the, the 700 million uh, people who voted, or sorry, 70 million people who voted for him. But I think we have to recognize that the Republican Party is his true base, and that the connection between these two bases is uh, intimate, uh, as demonstrated finally by what happened on Wednesday. Because what happened on Wednesday was, in one sense, the undoing of the history that I was just describing. The the painful development of the idea of party politics as a replacement for military opposition seemed on Wednesday all at once to fall apart. And um, and military opposition in the form of the uh, attempt to storm the Capitol seemed to have taken over and, and really have to thrown into, put on the back burner our recognition of what the Republican Party itself has been trying to do. But as I thought about it, I came to realize that in a way it really only made the connection between uh, military force and political force very clear. Because the way in which, uh, the way in which those, re- those events have been reported naturally has taken the form of showing that the lists of Republicans who have opposed democratic rule correspond very closely to the list of Republicans who also approve of this insurrection. So the connection, uh, and of course the failure of party politics in the case of the Republicans, uh, the connection between the two is reinforced rather than obscured by what happened on Wednesday. I just read a poll, and, and maybe of our, some of our listeners saw some amazing polling that said nearly half of Republican Party, self-declared Republican Party members out there who are polled say they approve of the insurrection and the violence at the Capitol. Yes. That is, uh, that, 
I, I don't know how to even react to that. But uh, Richard and, and uh, Ruthann, you have a question or comment for Professor McKeon. Sure. Well, I was I was delighted to see the term loyal opposition and disloyal opposition because many years ago uh, when I was on the faculty senate uh, of my university, there was a, a man who always voted against it when he when it looked like a unanimous vote. He would always cast negative votes. Yes. And he said, and he would say, as he cast it, loyal opposition. And I said, what the hell are you talking about, Bill? <laughs> um, I was young. Um, and he said, you have to always acknowledge that there is room for disagreement. And you, uh, as soon as you start to look like a lockstep group, you cease to, uh, to have any credibility. Yes. And I thought, well, you know, that was the first time I ever heard the term. And yeah. I was delighted to see it again. There has to be room for dissent, but it can't be uh, wordless dissent, and this is what, uh, what did any of the people who stormed the battle, the uh, battlefield uh, Wednesday have to say? They, they had nothing to say uh, beyond Trump, I guess, that was the only, the only word I saw. Um, and therefore, there's nothing to, to argue against, uh, and there's nothing to open uh, any kind of dialogue I think uh, it, it's terrifying today. Today, uh, McConnell is pushing forward, uh, pushing uh, later and later into the possibility uh, any kind of dealing with Trump and what Trump has done. Uh, yes. Just you know, let it go into the past. Uh, we do that too much. Uh, if they, if the Republicans are more than people who refuse a president's first dinner invitation, which they did to to Obama. Um, they have to stand for something, and they really don't. They're just uh, negative. They're not an opposition. They're a wall, as far as yes. I can see, and that's not constructive. I, no, I, think really, I really enjoyed your, your article. Well, thank you. Um, focusing in on the concept of the loyal opposition, I think, is exactly right, and that's what I meant to be doing with my, <clears throat> my uh, discussion of its emergence in the context of this year's events. Uh, the whole point of the, the notion of a loyal opposition is that it overcomes and replaces the idea that the only form of opposition is that which is total and, and absolute, and that that's how governments work. That was, that was the absolutism of monarchy in the 17th century, and the hard-won result of overthrowing the king was the recognition that there should and could be a category of opposition that stops short of civil war, which means that opposition itself is acceptable. That's what it means to live in a democracy. But that opposition that, um, that goes so far as to seek to, to subvert, seek to... Um, to be seditious and treacherous with respect to the government itself has to be opposed and is disloyal. And that's what it meant, I think, for, for Parliament to become, or, or for those who, who uh, in Parliament refused uh, to, to accept the, the principles that were being put forward by the ruling power. Uh, not that it therefore had to be overthrown, but that they loyally opposed it because they too were part of the government. Yes, I think that's uh, that's also related to my reaction in watching the 
the uh, storming of the Capitol on Wednesday, I've been a protester in those halls. Yes. I used to lobby with the AAUP. I was in a number of demonstrations and protests. And there are there the capital accommodates it. And we've always we always found that felt that someone was listening. And we always had something to say also. But as I, I think it it, uh, it might have been um, even an art uh, op ed piece in the Times today said once the the uh, Trump people got into the Capitol, they had no idea what to do. Yes. No, that's what it is to be a mob. Right. Yeah. Other other than to destroy uh, property, and actually there were people running around with zip ties, apparently prepared to take hostages, and God knows what to, what they would have done there was, with There was them. talk of executing legislators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And somebody erected a gallows in front of the uh, yes. statu and statuary and hall. And people are pointing out the implications of this for the next week or so are very frightening indeed. Yeah, I, I would just add that, and, and you may have heard this, um, our listeners and our panel and guest, that uh, the same groups that organized and came together for this insurrection on Wednesday are planning other gatherings in Washington and at state capitals. Right. And I've heard the dates, the January 19th, 17th, and the 20th, the, uh, the yeah. day of the inauguration. So uh, this is not in our rearview mirror. This is... Uh, real and uh, present danger. That's right, yeah. Professor McKeon, I'd, I'd like to focus in on one point in your article, which I found compelling. You, you said that the, the Republican Tea Party was the breeding ground for Trump's followers and anticipated his, quote, fake news and cult of in ignorance. Yes. And th this is the key that I'm interested in here. The, the very name, the Tea Party, twisted historical truth into grotesque disinformation, turning a symbol of resistance, that being the Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party, to colonial oppression, into oppressive resistance to that resistance or to the status quo, to the most uh, really egregious elements of the status quo. So the Tea Party using a symbol of resistance was in fact mobilizing to support the the worst aspects of the status quo. Yes. And so that twisting of language and using of symbols to put forward a specious argument and to try to gather momentum around that kind of movement is, uh, is something that I think is happening now. Absolutely. And I think the fact that what's being twisted is not only language but history is, is relevant here. <clears throat> or at least I felt it was relevant to the sort of argument that I wanted to make. Uh, as I go on to say in, in the piece, uh, I think this is relevant to the, the way in which conspiracy theory has become the, the dominant creed of Trump and his followers. But as I go on to say in the piece, I think very similar to what's happened to the idea of the Tea Party, or with the idea of the Tea Party, is the way in which the evangelical right has in the past what, two decades turned the 17th century achievement of freedom from religious absolutism of the state into the freedom of religion from supposed state control. In effect, what it's arguing for is exactly the opposite of what was sought through much bloodshed in freeing uh, minority religious movements 
from the majoritarian, absolute religious nature of the state. Now, uh, in fact, what what the uh, the evangelical right is trying to suggest is that uh, the problem has always been that that the uh, the movements that seek to mix religion with politics are in fact not the enemy but the friends the people that we should look to in order to to help us at the present moment and the point i make about about um conspiracy theory is following this this point that conspiracy theory is the secular equivalent of religious belief because it's a faith that is explicitly validated by the absence of empirical evidence. And that's what we see in these um, protesters most recently, but also in all those, the QAnon and other people, who uh, self-righteously base their sense of truth on the very absence of any evidence for it. It's a kind of, there's a kind of a, uh, a religious uh, cultism that consists in the notion that um, there's an invisible revelation that they alone have access to, which trumps everything that is clearly revealed by empirical reason. Just to reintroduce our guests here at the Resistance Roundtable, we're speaking with uh, Michael McKeon, uh, professor of literature at Rutgers. We're talking about his article, The Disloyal Opposition Storms the Capitol. The Republican Party has abandoned the role of loyal opposition to wage war against democracy. Professor McKeon, I, I have a brief question about the media. I, I think we all heard uh, yesterday that uh, Donald Trump's uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, accounts have been suspended. And there were important reasons why that took place, maybe late in the game, but they did take place. But the call to violence was one of them. Yes. We have, uh, we have propaganda networks for Donald Trump and the Republican Party and their fascist character these days on Fox News, uh, One America News Network, Newsmax, and there are plenty of others. Um, while we all defend and, and rightly, rightly defend the First Amendment and free speech in this country. The First Amendment is not a suicide pact. And yeah. I'm wondering, I think we as a nation are going to confront some hard realities about the disinformation and the call to violence that's coming out of these networks and how that's going to s smash horribly into our uh, reflexive defense of free speech. It seems like this is all coming to a head very soon. No, I agree. And it's, it's been latent in what's been going on, uh, certainly for the past year and more, because finally, it's, as, as you point out, uh, it's latent in the origins of, of the United States, uh, as can be seen in the First Amendment. The, the, um, the argument that free speech is fundamental principle of liberty is central to what we believe, and yet we recognize that free speech is not unlimited, uh, so that attempts have been made in the past few years to pursue the notion of hate speech as something that needs to be um, 
we need to be protected against while at the same time ensuring that free speech prevail. So finally, what we're talking about is the abstract but absolutely crucial question of the relationship between language and action. To what degree do we allow uh, all rhetoric to uh, flourish even when we have the sense that it can result in actions that are so far from being rhetorical, physically murderous? It's the same sort of problem that comes up in attempts to um, enforce a policy of state censorship on, uh, on speech or publications, not so much or not only because of their political danger, but uh, because of their sexual offensiveness uh, to large parts of the community. What's the limit on censorship? What's the criterion by which we understand that certain kinds of speech or publication uh, are simply unacceptable? This is a fundamental problem, and it's not one that's going to be solved in this crisis, but it's one that, uh, that gives us an example of, of the kind of rhetoric that uh, increasingly we must all agree has to be prohibited if we're to survive as a democracy. And certainly in this instance, where we have that very inflammatory, hateful speech emanating from the top level of government with all the power of that platform, this raises a whole other question of you know, when restraints need to be put in to uh, that kind of expression. Yes. Yeah, and as we found in in uh, any number of debates that were taking place among academic faculties, especially uh, uh, what, uh, 10 or 20 years ago, about how to handle hate speech on campus, and if we could permit hate speech yes. on campus, if you quell the speech, you, you risk uh, things happening that you have no awareness of, and yes. you lose the ability to address those things if you don't know that, that they're part of the of some dialogue as well. So ultimately, I think no university successfully adopted a hate speech code for, for that reason, that you, you can't discuss anything if you shut out your access to a large uh, area of input. Well, no, exactly. Um, you remind me also of <clears throat> the kind of uh, self-righteous and hypocritical attack that's been made by the right recently on what it calls censure culture. That is to say, the, uh, the willingness, the desire at some universities to, um, I'm sorry, cancel culture, to cancel speeches uh, that are being given by, by people who are known from their views to be likely to try to inflame the audience or to at least engage in hate speech that is repugnant to most people. I call this self-righteous and hypocritical simply because the critique comes exactly from those sorts of people who believe in the, the, the rectitude of the hatefulness that is spoken in these terms, uh, but who, who use the, uh, the protection of the First Amendment argument in order to hide their belief in the rightness of this speech under the cloak of free speech. Yeah, another example, I think, of twisting 
the principle of free speech into something that is ultimately going to resolve in the uh, oppression uh, sector of society. Professor uh, McKeon, we have been delighted to have you with us today. It's been a pleasure. Do you want to uh, share with us any other sources for your writing, which we encountered in this uh, instance on In These Times magazine online? Are there any other sites where we might uh, read your material? I can't really recommend anything else because this particular essay is uh, something I've never really undertaken before. My writing, it's a lot of my writing, but it's academic and scholarly. It's not to say it's not relevant to these issues, but it is embedded in the, the history, the 17th and 18th century history mm. of, of England uh, that I, in this piece, delve into briefly in order to approach more directly our contemporary politics. So the background of what I'm talking about is all there. However, uh, and it's in a number of books that I've written and articles. However, I haven't written anything that addresses the contemporary crisis apart from this, this piece. Okay. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure to have you. And uh, if you ever do, <laughs> publish again in, uh, in These Times or Counterpunch or Jacobin. We will follow you and uh, try to, uh, to include your voice here again. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful to you for allowing me to fill in some of the ideas that I tried to express in that essay. Indeed. It's been, it's been our pleasure. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, thank Professor you. McKean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's a good deal after 10.30, but we are going to now open the phones to uh, listeners who might want to express their opinions about anything that's happened in the past week or the past six months or since November 3rd. In the uh, last 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. And the number to call to uh, join in the conversation is 203-336-9756. And uh, so please feel free to make use of our uh, <clears throat> open forum here on the Resistance Roundtable. Scott Harris, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, and myself, Richard Hill, be happy to uh, engage in a conversation with you. Well, we do yeah. have some callers. Okay, you have a call? Fine. Let's... Hi, WP Can, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. I'd just like to uh, add some comment uh, uh, to your show. Sure, go ahead. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, it was great. And I think... Um, uh, the speaker uh, made some really great points about um, what's happened currently. Um, but, you know, from the outside, I'd like to look forward to what the Senate and the Congress and the government can do going forward. I'm sure that um, everybody that's listening, uh, including you guys and the guests, uh, myself, I reacted with disbelief, anger, sadness, and, and now I think some vengeance about the events that played out at the Capitol. And I probably, like everybody else, we're still processing the images and the, the acts and the, and the complete and feral attempt to stop the government. But not just stop the government, but I think importantly, everybody needs to understand that this was an attempt to stop the will of 150 million voters, both Democratic and Republican, because their goal is to overturn the government. So in short, I would just say, I think we need to look forward. And my real hope is that the Democrats take a page from McDonald, McConnell's playbook and play hardball. They should impeach the president, and they should do it right away. 
Um, Biden's work and his confirmation hearings, all that stuff can wait another week. The world won't end. Um, I say dump the president in no uncertain terms, and only then can we start to recalibrate and look forward. Uh, It's like we we have to get rid of this boil. You know, we have to, as a country, really come to grips with it and move on. This is going to upset people on the right, uh, especially the, you know, the crazies that we saw this week. But it has to be done in no uncertain terms because uh, the Democrats and 80 million of us who voted for Joe Biden need to make it clear that this won't stand. That's my, that's my five cents on it. Uh, you guys are doing a great job, and thanks. Well said. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I think that the uh, accountability, th- that issue that you're raising, and the idea of, of getting rid of, get of getting rid of Trump quickly, also has to carry over into the notion of what happens after he's gone, and what kind of accountability he he has to be uh, subject to, so that this kind of behavior, really seditious behavior, and call to terrorism, which I, which I believe is what happened uh, on Wednesday, is not just sort of brushed over and said, oh, well, okay, he's gone now. We can look forward. No looking back. And so I think that the, the accountability thing is very, very important, whether it's a commission, whether Trump is brought up on literally on, on federal charges for this behavior, but uh, is called uh, before some kind of tribunal to answer for his, uh, there's no doubt about it, crimes now is going to be a critical point that we have to deal with. Yeah, it's clear that Trump is a clear and present danger, as some of us have been saying since he was put in office. But he's also a clear and future danger uh, because of things like this. I I think the caller might uh, might enjoy reading Professor McKeon's entire article where he does talk about, uh, to a certain extent, what can be done and what should be done. Uh, Also in today's New York Times, in the op-ed page, uh, Anna Sauerbrey uh, has a really interesting article about the takeover of the of the uh, German legislation of uh, parliament this past summer the attempted takeover and the, the ways in which that was similar to what happened on Wednesday and the ways that it's different uh, to what happened on Wednesday and what we have to to tend to, including what we're going to do about it. And do about it does not include uh, what Mitch McConnell seems to want to do, which is nothing. Right. We do have a caller on the line. Hi, caller. You're on the air. Hey, um, I want to give you a little credit for some of your informative information. But if you ever want to put me on the radio, I'll challenge you and the professor and anybody. I have documents. I've been studying for 40 years. I'll document the conspiracies, and it's about 85 to 90 percent of conspiracies, okay? They're trying to undermine this country. Maybe the Democrats and Republicans are a little ignorant about what's going on. But if you can't see it, then you got to be blind. I'm almost 80 years old, and I've been watching this stuff for years, okay? With the fake news, disinformation, corruption on both sides, Democrat and Republicans, okay? And I have documents on Democrats, official documents of corruption, deals in China, deals all over the world, under lining their bank accounts and everything else, okay? What did you think about the insurrection that took place on Wednesday, sir? What, There's what a you good think? possibility that Antifa and, and Black Lives Matter behind the scenes to exacerbate the situation, <laughs> to make it look like it's Trump's 
fault, okay? You know what? That's that's, that's delusion. And uh, you know what? I, 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 I'm sorry. If this is this is nonsense. And no, unless you can nonsense. back that up, we're gonna, we're not going to entertain that kind of disinformation. When Obama so. wanted to take the guns away, and they sent all automatic weapons over to Mexico, so then they can come back and infiltrate and raise hell in the United States. What about the Russian collusion, which I proved that was a fake? That the 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 Fast and Furious to take the guns away. See, right. they, I know how the game is played. Yeah, well, there's a conspiracy theory uh, for almost anything you can think of, and I think you, I think uh, I think. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir. You're spinning your wheels and you're wasting our time with the conspiracy theory. Thank you so much for calling. Okay, you don't want to hear it. That's the. You know, this is a, a. I'm glad this individual called. You know, he may be a, a nice guy, has a family. Has uh, a dog, <laughs> makes great uh, uh, omelets on Sunday morning. I don't know who this guy is, but he's repeating verbatim the nonsense, the garbage, the lies, the propaganda that's coming out of Fox News. It's coming out of OAN and Newsmax and the dark web. And uh, this is the poison that's attacking our country at the moment. So I'm glad he called because it's instructive. It may be your neighbor. It may be the person you're standing in line with at the supermarket. They are gullible and dangerously so in a moment in our history where this belief system in lies is uh, not just something that's irritating, but has has broken out into violence that threatens our democracy. This is a, a real crisis, and I, I wish we had more time today, and I know we will in the future, to talk about how we handle this. Conspiracy thinking is addictive. And, you know, I'll tell you something. I've been tempted to go down that rabbit hole on a number of occasions. And, uh, you know, with 9-11, with the Kennedy assassination, <laughs> I still believe we don't know the, the true story there. I mean, it, it, is, it is really difficult to resist the notion of some sort of dark forces twisting and turning and fabricating and confabulating and, and leading us into complete confusion about the events that are happening. And uh, so I sympathize with people who believe in conspiracy theories, but I'll tell you something, it's a drug and you got to get off it. We do have another call on the line. Hi, you're on the air. Um, yes, hi. I've um, been listening to uh, the two callers that came uh, came through and also the the, the uh, professor. Um, one thing um, yeah, that the last caller sort of uh, exemplifies is some of the things that I'm concerned about um, is that, uh, you know, we're, what we're seeing happening right now is a symptomatic of what happened in major upheavals in society, you know, when there's major technical, technological and economic changes going on. It's changing people's livelihoods in a dramatic way and I um people I think are are really seriously underneath it all are afraid both on both uh both sides I, are you know there's the side that uh, is more um more uh anxious to react you know and the only ways that they you know they think make a difference which is you know the, the kind of um, the military kind of conquest type of mentality that that's been in our his, our collective human history for for thousands of years, and then there's the others that are, um, as, as a professor had said, basically, and then there's people today that try to have the more cooperative, um, you know, um, governmental, um, you know, uh, solution 
to dealing with, uh, you know, divergent opinions about what needs to be done. So I, I think what the, the problem is is that, um, you know, people need to really think about the longer, the longer range what's going on. There's not enough thought about about um, history. I mean, we we have so much technology now that our ancestors never had to avert, you know, the worst aspects of scarcity like hunger and homelessness. And then there's the other people that are afraid of that they've worked so hard for their wealth and they, you know, they're going to lose it all. That I mean, I talk to Trump supporters, like my brother, who who's, who who gets very angry thinking that we're going to, you know, that socialism is going to take over and, and uh, take everything away. But no, that's not, you know, that's not what's going to happen. We've got to all find a middle ground, and people have to think, do we really want another civil war? You know, why do people, you know, this is the kind of things that are happening now are things that happened, um, the fascists versus the communists back in 1940s, and before that it was a civil war. You know, these are unresolved things. You know, the Confederate flag is popping up now. Everybody goes, what the heck is that? There's, like, generations that probably still carry some kind of anger over major losses to their family wealth or whatever. So people need to really, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't know what can be done other than there needs to be more talk about, you know, what do we really want for everyone? Because this is the first time in human history where we have the p- potential to talk to each other across long distances and solve problems. we got so much technology and, you know, com- instant communications to help solve all of our, our problems, people just got to stop being afraid and just kicking up arms and, you know, all this heated rhetoric. I mean, it's just, you know, we have to stop making fun of each other. I don't know. Something's unhealthy, and we need to work on healthy ways of solving our problems. That's all I can think of needs to happen. Let's, let's, have, our, let's have our panel respond to your okay. important Sorry. points, very constructive and positive points, but let, let's have okay. some of our, our panel here react. Okay. okay. Right. Well, I, I particularly love your comment because it touches on something that I think is deeply serious and I think was motivating the previous caller as well. When we don't understand the world in terms that make sense within our limited uh, human or uh, parochial concepts of things, we glom onto anything that will make sense of it. When we study old tribes, ancient beliefs, ancient religions, we like to, there's a tendency to say, oh, they were so primitive. Look at the silly things they believed in, throwing virgins into volcanoes. How could you think that that would make any sense? Well, evidently it made sense to somebody. Uh, and it made, it, it worked in terms of the way that they managed the universe. I'm just looking up Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and it sounds just like uh, the way that we have to understand the the conspiracy theories that that say if there's no evidence, you can be even more sure that it's that it's the truth. Mm. It's always an attempt to to find an explanation. And so when people tell you something really weird, if it fits into some notions you already have, you'll say, well, that makes sense. And you're willing to believe it and go on to build a model of, of the universe or of political interaction or whatever based on that flawed understanding. Uh, I don't think we have enough trust in reason, and I don't think we have enough understanding of political ideas and political thought in order to be coping with with this uh, swirling uh, variety of notions that are going on right now. We do have uh, mechanisms in our government for dealing with those kinds of uncertainties. 
but this uh, Trump's army uh, believes they have some other way. Uh, and I don't know if this makes sense as a response to what the, what the caller has raised, but I think it's a really important issue to think about people trying to make sense of a society that's more complicated than they can understand. And uh, I'll, ju- I'll just quickly add, Richard, I, I know you want to respond, no. but, I, but I do think uh, the idea that we are headed into uncertain times and have gone through some very difficult times in terms of how our economy is based, is it's thrown a lot of people into a panic, and they're looking for uh, other people to blame for this. And this is what uh, Trump and the Republican Party have been so good at in terms of scapegoating. In fact, fascist uh, uh, parties and movements throughout history have done exactly that. Right. And that caller who, who spoke to the propaganda and parroting every damn thing he heard on Fox News for the last uh, four years or 10 years or 20 years, yeah, he, he is uh, swallowed it whole. We've got to think for ourselves, and we, we have to understand that there are forces out there that are challenging our, our, our economy and our livelihoods and how we make our way in the world, uh, but the simple answers of blaming other people is uh, deliberately misleading for those who uh, want to make profit from such uh, hate and violence. The only thing I would add to this is that it's going to take more than just, you know, understanding and open-mindedness toward other cultures and other peoples. It's going to take struggle. It's going to take the type of thing that led to the victories of Warnock and uh, Ossoff in, in Georgia, where a multiracial movement fought against amazing odds to, to win those victories and to begin to build leadership in this country that can direct the movement toward justice, fairness, social equity on all levels. And it is through the demonstration of those benefits that I think these, a lot of these, uh, these conflicts will be resolved. And I hear the music in the background telling us that we are at the end of our hour. This has been the Resistance Roundtable coming to you on WPKN and Bridgeport 89.5 FM. For uh, Scott Harris, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, and myself, Richard Hill, we thank you for listening. It's been a spirited hour, and uh, we'll be back in February. That's Black History Month, and uh, we'll hopefully have a, a show theme to that. Join us the next second Saturday of the month in February for our next show. And this is WPKN, so stay tuned for more great programming. Barricada is up next. Thanks all for listening. Thank you.